Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You'll open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah in chapter 4. We're now looking at the fifth of the night visions of Zechariah. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches on the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Father, we ask that as the lamplight that Zechariah saw filled his eyes with light and wonder, that your word would fill us with light and wonder now. In Christ's name, amen. As we've worked through these night visions, we're on the other side of the, the eight-part structure. Right? We've had four kind of visions of ascent that took us all the way from the outside into the Holy of Holies, so that last week we found ourselves in the presence of God himself. Now, in the fifth vision, we stay there. Once again, we have a vision that suggests the presence of God, the throne room of God, but in a more symbolic way than what we saw last time. Now, I realize as you read this vision, it can be difficult to put all of the pieces together, especially in this fifth vision because of the way the details are given. They're kind of, you get part of what Zechariah sees at the beginning, and then at the end, he fills in more details that he didn't mention before to give you a completer picture of what he sees. And then the the oracle, the kind of instruction and explanation is all in the middle. So in order to, to kind of see what he sees... We have to take all of that information and and put it together into a picture that we can look at. And that's sometimes the way these prophecies go. I think 
A lot of times when we look at prophetic literature, uh, our tendency, as we've said before, is to kind of dig into the details, go really deep into those details. But in order to really understand what's going on, you need to take a step back, and you need to get a sense of the big picture. There's this uh, losing the forest for the trees kind of problem that can often happen when we over-interpret, when we hyper interpret and to avoid getting lost in those interpretive spirals we need to to try to just see the big continuities like how the pieces fit together the big picture now there's a weird thing that happens in biblical prophecy where later prophecies will build on earlier ones and it's not just that they add on but they will take images from earlier prophecies and yet in the new prophecy the image works a little bit differently it, it, it adds something or changes something. And, and this has a progressive revelation quality to it. Right? The picture is, is starting off fuzzy and it becomes clearer over time. And so that's to be expected that you get a certain kind of, uh, not imprecision exactly, but, but there are things that are missing from the puzzle, things that will be filled in later. But because of that, One thing it's difficult to do is to take the later prophecies and then go back to the earlier ones and just read what happens later onto the earlier one and just try to make the earlier one fit the later one. So, for example, this is a little bit inside baseball, but when you read Zechariah 4, one of the temptations, especially if you're a person that likes to look at the the footnotes and go to the other passages, the cross-references, one of the temptations is to go to Revelation 11 where there are two witnesses and where a lot of this imagery uh, reappears. And then to read Zechariah 4 as if everything means what it means in Revelation 11. But it's not exactly the same. So on the one hand, you don't want to get so far into those details that you're taking, you know, the details from here and plugging them in here and assuming that what Zechariah means is exactly the same as what John did. But on the other hand, you kind of have to notice that these things are really connected and that they're saying essentially the same kind of thing. In other words, it's sort of like you have to defocus a little in order to see the big focus. Like you have to step back from, from the fine details to recognize that even though all the little pieces may not fit exactly the same, the big picture overlaps pretty closely, and we can see the connections in these messages that God is giving. So with that in mind, we're going to do that here in Zechariah 4. We're going to take the beginning of that vision and the end of that vision. We're going to take those details together to try to get a sense for the picture, like what it is Zechariah sees when he opens his eyes like a man waking up out of sleep. What is it that he beholds? Now, the lampstand that he sees, Zechariah's lamp, it, it's a symbol. Right? It's, it's a symbol of something. It's meant to represent something. Zechariah's lampstand is a picture of grace. It is a picture of grace, how grace works. But you're not going to see that at first. You're going to have to sit with this a little bit for the details to come into focus. So let's do it. So we get the vision little by little. And what we're going to try to do is take it and and put it all together. So he sees a lampstand. And when you try to picture this lampstand, what you need to picture is a menorah. 
What he's describing is what we would recognize as a menorah. So it's a special kind of lampstand, a stand, kind of pole in the middle, that has these arms that branch out from the sides, and there are seven of them. So one going straight up, and then six going out on the sides, curving up, so that you have seven if you count across the top. It is a menorah. Now, if you've been involved in some of our book studies, and you read, for example, the Greg Beal book, God Dwells With Us, uh, you know that a menorah is a certain kind of symbol. It stands for something. It's a stylized version of a tree. So when you see that golden lampstand with all of those arms going out, what you're meant to picture is like an abstract tree, suggestive of the trees in the Garden of Eden. In the temple that Solomon built, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 6, and you look at the decorations that were in the temple, the menorah is one. But there are a lot of decorations, and what they are meant to do is in an artistic, stylized way, represent a perfected garden. So that the dwelling place of God in the temple is a picture of Eden, the dwelling place where God dwelled with man in the garden before sin. And all of those pictures point forward to the the new heaven and the new earth, the garden that is to come where God will dwell with us. That's what we see in the lampstand, in the menorah. Also, think about this. It's a tree, but but what is its purpose? It's, It's a lampstand. It's a tree that gives off light through fire. So it's a tree that is burning which should make you think of Exodus 3 in the burning bush where God revealed himself in the bush that burned but was not consumed and gave his covenant name to Moses. Again, a tree, but a tree on fire, a burning tree. Moses, when he built the tabernacle, a tent for God to dwell in, there was a menorah inside that temple, one menorah, one lampstand inside the tabernacle. When Solomon built his temple, uh, instead of one, there were 10 menorahs in the temple, five on either side of the temple, and they ran up the walls, kind of like the lights on a, on a, uh, a runway, leading you forward from the outer court into towards the Holy of Holies. They signaled you Forward. And so this is the kind of lampstand that Zechariah sees, something familiar from the tabernacle, from the temple. But Zechariah's menorah is different. He describes it as having seven lamps, and each of the lamps has seven lips. So you might think of it as the seven arms, and then each of the, the parts on top has seven Uh, wicks or fires burning on it, or even maybe seven little menorahs sprouting out of its arms, so that instead of having seven lights all across, you have seven times seven, which is 49. Seven, as we said last time, is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection or wholeness. If that's the case, then seven times seven suggests the perfection of perfectness. It also invokes the Jubilee year. The Jubilee came in the 50th year when all of the the, the debts were remitted and the land that had been sold returned back to its owners. That happened in the 50th year. So having 49 lights feels like a countdown of sorts towards the year of Jubilee, towards that year of restoration. 
Now, this lamp has a bowl on top. And the purpose for having the bowl is it's a reservoir. It's a reservoir of oil, which is what fuels the lamp. This is a lamp that burns olive oil. And it just so happens that on either side of the lamp, there are olive trees, which is where olive oil comes from. Now, the placement of the trees is interesting. On either side, we have an olive tree kind of overshadowing the lampstand. If you had gone into Solomon's temple and you had been able to walk in following the light of the menorahs all the way back to the Holy of Holies, if you could have looked behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, on either side of the Ark of the Covenant were these giant cherubim. They were golden cherubim angels, so large. They were built so large that, that were actually given sort of like the, the measurements for how their wings should, should butt up against the walls. Like they're really packed in there. Now they were covered in gold, but they were made of olive wood, the wood of the olive tree. So it's interesting that here we find two olive trees on either side of the lampstand. Remember Jesus' parable about the ten virgins, the wise virgins and the unwise virgins in Matthew 25? They bring lamps because they're waiting at night for the bridegroom to come. But the wise ones are the ones who, when they bring their lamps, also bring oil so that they can keep their lamps burning. That's the kind of lamp, light, that we're talking about. It is fueled by oil. The lamp cannot give its light unless there is a wise human hand there to provide the fuel, to keep it lit, to keep adding oil as the oil is consumed. But we learn at the end of this vision that this lamp is fueled differently, that there are from these trees, these olive trees, there are these shoots or branches and there are golden pipes. And the golden pipes pour out golden oil to feed the lamp as it burns so that this lamp burns and continues to burn without the assistance of human hands. It never runs out of oil. Its oil is constantly provided. No human being has to contribute to this light. No human being's work is necessary to keep this light burning. Now, these trees, the angel at the end of the vision refers to them, and in our translation, they're referred to as anointed ones which is interpretive because in Hebrew, literally, what they're called are the sons of oil. The sons of oil. They're the ones who produce the oil. Now, calling them anointed ones, that is traditional, but it's not exactly right because that suggests they're the ones being anointed. Like when I hear the anointed one, I think the one who was anointed by someone. But the sons of oil are not being anointed. They're anointing. They're the source of anointing. They are the source of the oil. The sons of oil anoint the lamp, and the lamp burns, providing the light. That's the picture that Zechariah sees, a lamp that is burning, a lamp that that is, is incredibly bright, because it's not just seven lights, but seven times seven lights meant to suggest a huge amount of illumination. And as he looks upon it, he realizes that this is a lamp that will never go out, that this is a lamp that is fed from the trees that are on either side of it, that this is a lamp that burns despite the fact that no human being tends it or contributes to it, which is a mystery. 
the lamp that Zechariah sees, it, it represents a mystery. How can this lamp keep burning? How is it possible for this lamp to give light and continue to give light even though no human being is watching over it? No human being is tending it the way the priest did the lamps inside the temple. How can this be? How can this work? That's the mystery. But that mystery is, is a metaphor for another mystery that has to do with the temple. Because remember, these visions are coming as the temple is being rebuilt, as this work that is seemingly impossible is being undertaken. They are building the temple despite the fact that their resources are small and the opposition is great. There, it, there's a mountain of opposition against them. It seems impossible that they will finish the work that they have now begun. That's another mystery. And this vision answers it. What does this mean? Zechariah asks. And the angel's like, do you not know what this means? Do you not see what this means? As if he should get it. As if it should make sense to him. But when the angel answers and starts revealing the the mystery, the, the meaning, you might think there's a little bit of a non sequitur. Because Zechariah says, explain this vision to me. And the angel doesn't do it. The angel just starts giving him instructions what to say to Zerubbabel, what to tell the governor. But those instructions are the answer to the meaning of the mystery. Those are the key. What are the words that must be spoken to Zerubbabel, the governor who is responsible for rebuilding the temple, this impossible task? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The temple will be built by God's strength, not man's, just as the lamp burns by God's power, not man's. How will the work be done? God says, not by might, not by power. You won't accomplish it because you're good. You won't accomplish it because you're strong. You won't accomplish it because you're skillful. It will be accomplished by my spirit. And what is impossible For you is not impossible for me. By my spirit, it will be done. And the mountain of opposition you face will be nothing in comparison. He addresses the mountain directly. Oh, mountain. Like speaks to the mountain saying, in essence, as the temple is built, as the work is built up, what once seemed like a mountain will be flat in comparison, will be flattened by the progress of the house of God as it is built. And that the same man who laid the foundation of the house will finish it. Zerubbabel, who laid the foundation, will also finish it. We looked back at the beginning of this series in Ezra chapter 3 at that moment when the foundation was laid and the people cried out in joy, but some of them also cried out in sorrow because they were discouraged by, by how modest a structure this was. That was a beginning. And for a long time after that beginning, nothing happens. But now we're being told the same author who laid the foundation will also be the finisher of the house. Now, if you had heard these words back then and you were worried about this construction project that maybe would never be finished because of all the opposition, God is saying, don't worry about it. The guy who started this is going to finish it. Zerubbabel, the governor, same guy, this is going to be done. And sure enough, four years later, it was done. 
and the final stone was laid on it. And once again, the people rejoiced. We saw that in Ezra chapter 6. So that this impossible task, this mountain that could not be overcome in the course of three chapters in Ezra, this problem is solved. And it seems as if, hey, what were we worried about? But it wasn't done by their might. It wasn't done by their strength. It was done by my spirit, says the Lord. And here we have to remember that Zerubbabel is, in the words of the last vision, a man who is a sign. That Zerubbabel is not just here as governor at this particular point in history, but he's also a sign of what is to come. My servant, the branch, who is to come. Here's another type of the messianic priest king who is coming. In other words, of Jesus. So Zerubbabel is an anticipation of what Jesus will do which, when I use the words author and finisher, might have clued you in on that, because Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. So when you look at a vision like this, and you say, okay, hold on now. Is this a prophecy about the rebuilding of the temple in the days of Zerubbabel, or is this a prophecy about the building up of the house of God, the people of God, the church in Christ, by Christ? The answer is yes. It's both of those things, and that's how prophecy often works. It's like a rock that you're skipping across the water, and it lands first in a sort of historical fulfillment, and it keeps going and ultimately reaches a fuller spiritual fulfillment as well. And all of those things, all of those layers are intended and are part of God's prophetic word. Here we're seeing a prophecy that in four or five years, people are going to say, yep, Zechariah was right. That is fulfilled. You can scratch that one off. That's one of the promises God kept realizing that what they thought was done hadn't even begun and that the real prophecy was pointing them forward. There are two obscure things here in relation to Zerubbabel. One is he's placing a top stone. The other is he's holding a plumb line. The Hebrew here is difficult because in some cases these are the only times these words appear, and so a little bit of guesswork is involved in what they mean. So traditionally, they've been seen as a top stone and a plumb line, but uh, there's a little more that we can draw out of that. So when you see top stone, you might be tempted, as I'm very tempted, to think cornerstone. Right, to think about the, the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, that great and wonderful verse in Psalm 118 that is quoted so many times in the New Testament to refer to Christ as the cornerstone. But Zerubbabel here, the stone that he's carrying to lay, this top stone, it's not the foundation, because historically the foundation, he's already laid that. What he's coming to do is what may, maybe we call it like the capstone, like he's putting the final touches on the structure in this scene. So what's happening is he's carrying forward the last stone. He's putting it on the building. And as he does, the people are celebrating once again. They celebrated at the beginning with the laying of the foundation. And now they're celebrating at the end as this final capstone is added. And when they shout grace, grace to it, the it there is the temple. It's the building. They are calling for a blessing. They're asking God to shower grace upon this dwelling. Basically, come down and fill it with your grace. That's, what happen- that's what's happening there. So a plumb line is a kind of stone uh, uh, hanging from a, a rope or string in order to show if things are straight or, or something like that. I'm not a builder, but that's kind of my understanding of it. But, but 
there's a suggestion that what the Hebrew word is alluding to isn't a, so much a construction tool as a, uh, a tradition in the ancient world where when you were building a structure of importance, as you were laying that foundation, building up the walls, you would take precious objects, uh, gold, treasure, that sort of thing, and build them into the structure. So it may be that, that what Zechariah is, is being told is something like, uh, as these treasures are entrusted to the structure of the house, the people who once despised the day of small things will have reason to rejoice. You have to picture the moment, the moment that is to come. Like if you can picture what happened back then, that moment when they finished that temple, imagine what it will be like in the future when this vision comes to pass as the messianic priest king brings the final piece of the house of God forward to place it in this structure, this dwelling place that God has been building. When the time has come for the church to reach its, its completeness after so long, and the people of God shout, grace, grace to it. Shower your house with grace. Fill your house with mercy and grace. A time of celebration. May this temple be a house of grace. And just as the lamp burns without human help, the house of God is built not by your strength, not by your might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How is the church built? By my spirit. And the people celebrate. Because what God has built is not a house of works. It's not a house of merit. It is a house of grace. It is a house of glory for his people. So obviously, the encouragement that's been given to the Israelites of old and to us as well is don't despise the day of small things, the day of beginnings. You can't judge this future celebration based on what you see now. Because God is going to build this by his spirit, and it will become great. It's a little bit like an infant. What kind of person sees a little baby and says, it doesn't seem very effective. doesn't seem to be able to walk very well, communicates poorly. Mostly just seems to need stuff. I, I don't expect much out of this kid. I mean, probably no promising future here. <sighs> Super discouraging that our kid turned out to be so helpless. Of course not. You're, you're enthralled and in wonder at that helplessness and also filled with a sense of what will be, like the future that is to come, the, the potential, the dreams that are to be fulfilled. Right? When you look at that small thing, that beginning, you see all of the future promise that is wrapped up in it. And instead of being discouraged by it, you're lifted up. And this is the same thing. That those in who in the day of small things despised it, those who lost hope and despaired, will have their hearts lifted when they see what God did with such humble beginnings when the day of grace comes. So Zechariah's lampstand is a picture of grace because it's a lamp that burns without human intervention, without human effort or work. It's a lamp that burns by my spirit. God saves his people. Zechariah's lampstand is a picture of us. It is a picture of us. To those returned exiles, the vision said the temple's going to happen. This is going to happen. Don't worry. 
It's not going to happen by your strength. It's going to happen by my spirit. And the temple's author will also be its finisher. So don't worry about that either. The day of small things that you despise now will lead to the greatest day of all. And you will be filled with hope and you will cry with joy. Grace, grace to it. And the vision says the same thing to us as well. The church is going to happen. God is going to build a house to dwell in, but it's going to happen through the Spirit's power, not yours, not by your might, not by your power, but by his Spirit. And Jesus Christ will be the author and finisher of it. Jesus Christ will be the one who lays the foundation and lays the final stone on the structure and inhabits that dwelling place. And that house, the church of Jesus Christ, will be and must be a house of grace. And that lampstand will shine. It will burn brightly, and it will be a witness in the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it, and the testimony of that lamplight will never be blown out. Which I hope is making you think of Pentecost. Because as you think about the lampstand, what the lampstand symbolizes, something happens at Pentecost that is is really, really similar to this vision that we've been talking about. Jesus lights some candles at Pentecost, literally. The Spirit given as a gift to the church on the day of Pentecost, there are, are tongues of flame above them. The way that you would have seen on the lampstand of Zechariah, not seven, but seven times seven lamps, lights, Flames bearing witness, light in the darkness, people on fire, burning bright for God. Meredith Klein writes that at Pentecost, Jesus, the true son of oil, poured out the fire fuel of the spirit from his heavenly throne and flaming tongues lighted upon the heads of the assembly of commissioned witnesses. The Zechariah 4, vision of the menorah with a jubilee of flames had come to life. Here was a reproduction of the symbolic picture in historical reality. The actual menorah lamp was lit. Jesus had inaugurated the church's menorah mission of worldwide witness, testifying to the new covenant in his blood, showing forth his death until he came. That foundation was laid. That light was lit. And Jesus Christ has been witnessed to and testified about from that day forward in the life of the church. This is the 11th anniversary of this church of grace. And as we look back on our history, going back all the way to the olden days, circa 2008, you can see many of the lessons that these people learned also being learned by us as well. Uh, I was there back in the olden days in 2008 and 9 and 10, leading up to the establishment of our church. And I'll be honest with you, it really felt like we couldn't possibly fail. You looked around at the people who were involved, and you saw a lot of experience and resources, a lot of talent coming together. It really felt like, wow, this is definitely going to be easy. There is just no way we can get this wrong. Well, it turns out we did. We did get it wrong. We did fail. We failed again and again. And looking back, we can see God humbling us. God was teaching us, not by talent, not by resources, but by my spirit. By my spirit, the house will be built, and it will be a house of grace. 
Whether you've been here ever since then or you've just discovered us, the thing you need to know is that this is a house of grace. This is a house of people who've learned, often the hard way, that it doesn't come through our abilities, that it doesn't come through our merit. It comes by his spirit or it doesn't come at all. But don't worry, today, this is not our day of small things. Uh, it was a lot smaller than this. You can imagine that. We, we've, we've definitely had trying times. and We've had times where we're like, I don't know if there's a future for us. And God saw us through. God assured us and guided us so that now our cry can be grace, grace to it. May this be a house of grace. May God shower grace upon this place and upon these people. And if those are lessons for a church, they're lessons for us as individuals as well. If you consider your own day of small things, if you want to identify your day of small things, just think about the, the dreams that seemed inevitable that were not fulfilled. Like think of the relationships that were broken. Think of the jobs that were lost. Think of the failures. Think of the things that you didn't accomplish, even though they weren't even that hard. Think of the mountains of opposition that surrounded you and and seemed impossible to overcome. Think of the circumstances in your life that you despised and were sick of and just couldn't understand how your life had gone this way. You think of that, and these are the words that apply. Do not despise the day of small things because God, by his spirit, will build you up. The message of this prophecy is not if you apply yourself on the day of small things, if you stay positive and you commit, then one day your dreams will come true. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is burn brightly. Burn brightly. Embrace this mission that we have been given to bear witness, to be a flame in the darkness, filled with the oil of the Spirit burning brightly on behalf of Jesus Christ. Be a light that the darkness cannot overcome, no matter what day it is, no matter how many are with you, no matter how optimistic you are about the future, burn brightly, because one day it's going to be the Lord's day forever. One day, we will stand there. We will see as Jesus Christ lays the final stone, we will be present as the house which he has been building for seemingly impossible Generations is finally complete. And when he reaches out to place the final stone upon the structure to finish God's dwelling place with us, as you see it, you will cry out. You will shout for joy. You will call down God's blessing upon that place and you will say, grace, grace to it. And on that moment in the far future, when you look back at now, When you look back on this day of small things, when everything seemed impossible, instead of despising this, instead of hating this, you will finally realize what God meant when he said, by my spirit. Because you'll look back on all the great things that he has done and be in awe of that light. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. 
We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.